Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Okay, so let's go ahead and get this uh, this show started. This is a very this is a somewhat controversial topic because uh, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, oxygenators as we move forward. But you know the uh, there are two there's various different types of oxygenators. Of course, you have true membranes like the Cymed. Um, that's not used very often, the typical old flat, rolled flat, um, true membrane. And then you have polypropylene hollow fiber, microporous hollow fiber uh, membrane oxygenators. And then you have polymethylpentene uh, process on those polypropylene fibers, which makes a, which gives you the PMP filter uh, design, which is submicroporous. And that would be like Mm. Your Quadrox oxygenator or your uh, EOS oxygenator. And uh, I also believe uh, the uh, MC3 uh, oxygen. In fact, I'm positive the MC3 oxygenator as well. There's probably several others that are out there uh, that do that. But it's a controversial topic because, um, of course, polypropylene fibers have a fault associated with them. And we're going to really get into that. But um, there's some other reasons why people need to understand that you can use them. Um, you know, we do heart surgery with oxygenators that are polypropylene all of the time. Now, we typically don't do 48-hour bypass runs or 72-hour bypass runs or three-week bypass runs. Um, but the durability of these things is, uh, is very interesting. And there's things you can do to uh, try and extend its life, but there's also times when uh, their life expectancy is very short and the only thing you can do is use a PMP filter or continuously change it. But there's ways to do that safely as well. So let's, let's go ahead and get into this. Let's see. Do, Danuta, oh, that's, that's one of your, that's, that's Polish, that's you, Magic. I saw it, I was like, what does that say? Okay, well, Welcome, Danuta. Very ple- pleasure. Polish connection. Okay, so let's discuss the construction of modern microporous hollow fiber oxygenators. And that's what you see this picture here on the right. You have your, uh, the heat exchanger looks, it's not integrated, it's separate. Um, there's been several different designs of these things over time. And this is probably a pretty old picture. But if you look up here, what you notice in the top right is this is, represents these, this arrow, the blood flow passing through the fiber bundle. So you have your water in uh, up here. You have your water out down here. This is your heat exchanger, stainless steel. You have your blood in. Your blood crosses over into the oxygenator and comes out here going again on the outside of the fibers and you have your fresh gas coming in. This is a cross section, it's cut out, but uh, of course it's potted and there's a uh, cap on it and you have your gas flow coming in and then your exhaust gas out uh, down here. It's just one iteration of a, uh, of a uh, membrane oxygenator, uh, a, a specifically a hollow fiber, or a microporous hollow fiber, mem- uh, microporous 
hollow fiber oxygenator. It's not a true membrane, but we'll get into that a little bit as we go forward with this. So we're very used to hollow fiber technology. So HFMPM is hollow fiber uh, microporous uh, material or membranes um, that again, not a true membrane. So it's a little bit of false, no, of, of inaccurate nomenclature there. But for the sake of the, the technological terminology that's used, that is what's used. Uh, but in the 1930s, microporous fiber membranes found their first significant application in the testing of drinking water in most of Europe, particularly for Germany during the end of World War II. So we've understood microporous hollow fibers for a very long time. And in fact, in 1945, Kalf and Burke demonstrated the first successful they say artificial kidney in the, in the Netherlands, but we're talking about, of course, intermittent hemodialysis and diffusive transfer uh, of ions and metabolites. So, you know, dialysis as we know it today, it's very, it has changed very little except for the speed in which it gets done. Um, but hollow fibers also have microporous hollow fibers, also have applications in industrial, laboratory, and medical. Not only our oxygenators, but also hemoconcentrators, which are basically a, a dialysis unit. That is, and you can see if you look, if you look here, it sort of shows it diagrammatically. But if you look here, you can actually see the actual fibers. And of course, these are central flow devices. Blood flows from the bottom to the top. And you go, well, wait a minute, Joe, that's not right. It always goes from blue to red, right? We make blue blood red, that's what perfusion is. In the dialysis world, it is completely the opposite. And red is always access, not because it's arterial, but because as you hemoconcentrate blood, it gets darker and blue is your return to the patient, your concentrated blood. And we see that all the time when we're doing very aggressive hemoconcentration on pump. You can see that the blood going coming out of the hemoconcentrator is darker than the blood going in. And that has to do with how much more concentrated the red blood cells are. That's the reason why that change occurs. Polypropylene hollow fiber is made by an extrusion process. The fibers are stretched to produce pore-like structures. The process, and there's some chemical processes that go along with this, controls both the size and the distribution of the pores. And this is referred to as the fiber's porosity. That's an important concept and, and, and word to understand. Gas flows through the lumen of the uh, 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 hollow fiber. So again, it's central lumen. Blood passes along, but in the, uh, that's gas flow. In blood passes along the outer surface of the uh, bundle. So in an oxygenator, if you, versus dialysis, which is central, flow, the blood goes through the inside of the hollow fibers. 
in oxygenators, it's on the outside. And it's represented down here. Here's this, they call it a quadrangle, but I call it a square, a square oxygenator, okay? I'm, you know, I'm going to be a little controversial today, but I'm going to ask anyone. I will, you will win whatever prize we have in the studio. You know, we have great t-shirts, we have caps, we have surgical caps, we have all kinds of stuff. I'll send you two of everything I have. If you can tell me one thing in the human body that propels or transports blood that is square. If you can do that for me, or a quadrangle, is the, depending on which way you want to tilt the square. You let me know, you win everything. Because I know, of course, I'll never have to pay that, uh, that debt off. But here you see the blood in. You have oxygen in, oxygen out. You have the transition from the venous to arterialized blood, and then blood out. And what you see here is the blood path on the outside of the fibers. Here's just a little red blood cell representing that this is all blood. And the beauty of this process is that if it was central lumen, you could see you would have a mass transport or mass diffusion barrier would be in play. And your outside flow would seem better oxygenation and gas exchange than the intersection of the lumen or interluminal, if you will. But this pathway creates a lot of turbulence, which I'll be able to show you a little more later, and improves gas transfer in that way. But interestingly, in 19, circa 1982, the original design for microporous hollow fiber oxygenators was central lumen blood flow, and it was the Terumo Capiox. And if you look here on the left, you see the blood coming in, going central lumen, and then the blood flow coming out. So the blood was going through the inner aspect of those fibers, just like you see here where it says O2 flow right here. Oops, sorry. Right here, this is where the blood actually was. And that's what you see represented here with the oxygen flow or gas flow flowing on the outside of the fibers. On the opposite side, in the 1986, plus or minus, uh, Johnson & Johnson created the Maxima Oxygenator, which was the first reverse flow oxygen, uh, uh, oxygenator that was microporous hollow fiber. Um, it had easier priming than the central uh, lumen and, or central flow. It was lower resistance for obvious reasons. It's not hard to see why that would be the case. And the more turbulent flow improved gas exchange by decreasing the mass transfer boundary layer, as I talked about, diffusion boundary transfer uh, boundary layer all means the same thing. So you see it represented here, the oxygen or gas flow going through the central lumen and the blood going through the fibers and then out to the patient. And in fact, here is the J&J &J Maxima oxygenator. I used many of these things, many, 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 and it's got a very interesting story associated with it, which I hope you guys will find interesting. Now, I'm going to give a little disclaimer here. 
I'm going to make sure that everybody understands this is a violent uh, video clip. And if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, you may not, may not want to watch it. But this is a true story. Um, 1992, Los Angeles, the officers who had, uh, that were uh, tried for, um, uh, for abusing uh, Rodney King, using excessive force on Rodney King, were acquitted in their first trial. And the city of Los Angeles erupted in a mass of violence. And there was a guy driving a truck, which you can actually see the truck in the background of this image that you see, this still. And he, uh, his name was Reginald Denny. He got dragged out of that truck. And if you look on the right, I'll sort of highlight it right here, you see a person. And he's holding something. This is what I would need you to pay attention to right here. So I'll go ahead and play this video, and I may stop it. So you see it? It's coming up. Okay. Take a look at it. I'm going to rewind it and let you look at it again. But the top part is a reservoir. If you look at the bottom part right here, you notice a very interesting um, uh, similarity in this design. This looks much larger because it actually has a Venus reservoir that is attached to it. So I'll let you let the video play. Comes up, goes down, breaks apart, and the oxygenator goes one way and the reservoir goes another way. Um, so that was, I mean, that was a very violent thing to have happen. But take a look at it again and look at the oxygenator. When it was described on the news, it was described as a cinder block, sorry, as a cinder block, but it wasn't. Someone, and I actually thought it was Reginald Denny, but it wasn't because he was driving a dump truck and I, I, I really got that messed up a little bit in my story, but the, uh, there was someone who was transporting Maxima oxygenators for Johnson & Johnson to, I guess, be distributed or be whatever, and that's where that individual who threw it on him got it from was a different vehicle or a different transport truck. And uh, of course, that's what happened. But, you know, those oxygenators, I don't have an old Maxima oxygenator, but just to give you some idea, this, of course, is a uh, Levanova EOS, which is a PMP fiber oxygenator, as, uh, in case you didn't know. And usually their oxygenators, the polypropylene, are yellow, these are blue. Um, but this is round, as you can see, it has an integrated heat exchanger, but this is a very, I don't know if you can hear that, but this is a very hard piece of poly, thick polycarbonate. This hitting you on the head is going to do some serious damage. Maybe not a cinder block but it's going to be pretty close. So very durable uh, things, and the fibers are, of course, all inside. This is also reverse flow. The gas comes in, goes through the, you see the pot right there. I don't know if you can see it or not. You can see it's potted, and the gas goes through there, 
exits the gas outlet port, blood comes in here through the heat exchanger, goes on the outside of through the fiber bundle, and then comes out here arterialized. And you have a place here for cardioplegia. We only use these for ECMO. This is probably just a leftover housing design because generally speaking, you're not going to need this if you're uh, on ECMO. But I guess you could use it for something. But that's an oxygenator. And they're very hard. So central lumen size of hollow fiber, and that's going to be this section between here and here. That the pore, the the uh, the the tube itself, the lumen of the tube, not the pores, have a uh, which is the gas pathway, are about 140 to 380 microns. The wall thickness, which you see right here is between 25 and 50 microns. The, and that's referred to, so you know, as your diffusion barrier because you've got gas on this side, blood's gonna be on the outside, and it's got a 25 to 50 micron separation. And that is a, a significant diffusion barrier when you consider the alveolar capillary membrane is only 0.2 microns. So a very significant difference there. Polypropylene fibers are by design hydrophobic and they have a pore size of approximately 0.2 microns. I'm gonna show a little more of a close up, but if you look here on the right side, you see those little red lines. Those little red lines are 200 nanometers or 0.2 microns in size. The actual pore sizes, however, are not uniform, nor are the number of pores in any one, let's say, area. The gas transfer surface area of a typical hollow fiber lung is about 1.2 square meters. The lungs, on the other hand, contain 700 million alveoli and have an effective surface area of 70 to 100 meters squared. So it's remarkable, if you will, that these lungs that has a surface area of 1.2 square meters or meters squared can take venous blood at a saturation of 60 and a flow of five liters a minute and produce arterialized blood with a PO2 of 350 all day long with no problem. Blow off CO2 from, let's say you had a patient who was producing high CO2 for whatever reason, you could blow it off from a PCO2 of 50, 52, 55, all the way down to coming out of the oxygenator of 30, 35, no problem. So very efficient. Um, device given its diminutive size compared to our native lungs. Where it gets real interesting is that at five liters, it's rated maximum flow. It's going to work fine. But your lungs and us can be in situations where we have cardiac outputs of 12 liters, 14 liters, some athletes, 20 liters. So when you talk about uh, gas transfer surface areas, you have to take into consideration 
what is the metabolic need, what is the cardiac output. Because as you exceed that capability of this by flow, not having enough time to go through for all that gas transfer, unlike the lungs, that's when the oxygenators tend to show their limitations. So keep that in mind. When you have a patient who is on ECMO, who may also be septic and who is very hyperdynamic and you're putting them on for ARDS and you're flowing five liters and you can see a huge color differential between your inflow and your outflow and you're asking yourself, why is the patient's saturation only 85%? Well, if they have a cardiac output of 10 liters, and their lungs are contributing nothing, then you're only getting 50% of their blood, saturating it by 100%, and everything else is blow by, mixing back together again, and getting pumped over uh, to the left atrium, left ventricle, and out to the systemic circulation. That's why. And so you have to think all of those things through, and it's not going to be possible to flow eight liters with this oxygenator, you can, but it's not going to work very well. Pressure drop is going to be too high, and uh, it's uh, not going to be very efficient in terms of its gas exchange. You may need a separate, uh, a separate uh, uh, system in order to be able to do that. Okay. Here is a close-up of a polypropylene hollow fiber, and these lines, again, represent 0.2, uh, I'm sorry, two, yeah, two microns, 200 nanometers, okay, or 0.2 microns, I'm sorry. And um, you can see that they are oddly shaped. Their size, if I turn this, if I rotated this longwise, that's certainly more than 200 nanometers, there's no question. You see the distribution is not uniform in any one section. And this is what they look like uh, under scanning electron microscopy. So membrane wetting is a huge problem. Plasma leakage, whatever you want to call it, through micropores membranes. And uh, the paper that was done in 1992, published in ASIO by Montoya, describes uh, in very nice detail why we were seeing plasma leakage or membrane wetting uh, with long runs on polypropylene microporous hollow fibers. And what he demonstrated was that lipids adsorb, adsorb, not absorb, adsorb on the surface of the hollow fiber. These phospholipids are naturally hydrophilic. As water is absorbed into the lip lipids, it creates a pathway into the pore for plasma to leak. And if you look here, you can see that with the phospholipids here, and you have the plasma, and you have the ability for the plasma to leak. And here's your pore wall. So you see this invasion of the phospholipid onto the surface area here and here, creating this opening that exists, almost like a fault of some sort. 
Um, however, and with that said, another theoretical explanation is that the phospholipids that are, are adsorbed onto the surface will, because they are hydrophilic, will absorb water, causing the fibers to swell. Well, if you come back here and look at these fibers, here you'll see that if you were to start swelling this uh, material, this would stretch. And as that stretched, it would become larger. Here as well, here as well. And that stretching increases the size to greater than two microns. Actually, it's greater than 0.2 microns. And uh, so I think that's an error right there. Please forgive me. Um, then uh, uh, as that happens, you create a larger pore for plasma to leak through. What does this look like? Well, I don't know if you can hear that or not. Do we have sound? I don't have to hear. Oops, I'm sorry. I don't have to hear it, but I want to make sure that people are hearing it. Yeah, there you go. There's a little background static. But that's, that's good. That's good. Thanks. But if you notice, you see the yellow ring I told you about? I know this is a polypropylene oxygenator. Same exact oxygenator as the one that I showed you. But, and this is what plasma leakage looks like. And that's caused either by the phospholipids creating that channel or swelling the fibers and stretching and expanding the porosity of the uh, microporous hollow fiber. So the solution to membrane wetting, plasma leakage, is a material known as polymethylpentene, or PMP. However, there is only one manufacturer, and that's 3M uh, in Germany, that manufactures this particular fiber. And what was caused from that was, of course, a shortage in the height of a pandemic, which was a very big problem. Um, so that's sort of the point of my talk here today is, what are you gonna do? Can you use a polypropylene? Well, you know, you look at this, yeah, hold on one second. If you look at this video, you're probably gonna be horrified and say, no, I'm not gonna use a polypropylene uh, microporous hollow fiber for ECMO, because that's what I'm doing here, and that's what we see. But why does it happen? We understand that now. How can we attenuate that? I'm going to teach you a little bit about that. So, as, so this membrane, as an integral asymmetric hollow fiber oxygenation membrane, again, they, they, I consider this submicroporous. They will use the term that this is, uh, and it's plasma tight. That's another term you're going to hear a lot of. But they do call it a membrane. Um, I, I view this as submicroporous versus actual uh, membrane material. Um, and they have an oxy plus, combines the performance characteristics of the oxyfan, which is polypropylene, with a dense outer skin, characterizing it as a diffusion membrane. That this dense outer skin prevents the passing of liquids like blood plasma or water into the pores even during prolonged application and avoids direct contact of the, of the blood with air or oxygen. Now, in a 
microporous hollow fiber membrane oxygenator of polypropylene design. That is a diffusion gas transfer device also. So this is a little bit of marketing going on here. Um, you really don't have a direct gas to blood interface like you would in a bubble oxygenator, for example. As the outer skin is very thin, the membrane has excellent permeability for oxygen and carbon dioxide. The gas exchange performance is equivalent to that of the microporous membranes Oxyfan, which again is a, or Oxypan, which is a, um, a polypropylene uh, version. Um, and the membrane is made of, of course, PMP. But there's one manufacturer, it's 3M. So this one's made from that fiber. The Quadrox, the square oxygenator, is made from that fiber. The, uh, I believe the tandem oxygenator, uh, the one with no heat exchanger, is made from that fiber. I know that the uh, MC3 is made from that fiber, the one that Medtronic uh, distributes for, uh, for Dr. Bartlett's company. Um, I'm assuming, I don't know for sure, but that the, uh, the Abiomed ECMO oxygenator thing that they have um, is also PMP. I would think that not too many people are going to use polypropylene in a, in, a, in a design of things like that today. Uh, but polypropylene oxygenators still will continue to exist because they're great as for on bypass and they're much more affordable. And there's no real reason. I've, I can't tell you. I don't think I've ever had a plasma leak in the operating room, even doing a long case that may have taken all night uh, on pump. So I haven't had that experience anyway. Somebody else may have. If they have, I'd love to know. But that's not been my experience. Um, the process for PMP uses a traditional polypropylene fiber and adds this sub-microporous covering, also referred to as plasmatite. It is not, however, a true membrane, however, tight enough to overcome significantly the wetting complications in two ways. One, there is less phospholipid reactivity, A, and B, because it is submicroporous, the uh, uh, pore sizes are much, much smaller, so less prone to leaking even if swelling and having some increased size. The increase in size is not enough to uh, allow for the plasma leakage. The end result is an oxygenator with extended time and less subject to lipid degradation. There are plenty of papers out there of PMP fibers wetting out and leaking. It can still happen. It is far less frequent than you would find with a polypropylene fiber, but it does exist. So if you look up here on the top uh, left, you have in the white area here, gas phase. You have down here, a liquid phase. You have hydrophobic porous asymmetric membrane, which is this material here, which is really not a membrane, but this is basically your hollow fiber. And you have a liquid phase. And you can see here in this section, if you had, uh, which is, this is normally hydrophobic, right? This, this section right here and here, 
but if you had lipids adsorb, which are hydro, uh, hydrophilic, and they start to swell, you can see how this would start to distend and become larger, allowing for the plasma to leak out from the liquid phase to the gas phase. Here you see this non-porous uh, layer, which again, sub-microporous in my view, and, but you can see how it separates the two. And this is what it looks like cross-sectionally. Here's microporous. And again, this is made from the exact same materials. It's just you have this skin that you see here. So here are the microporous without a skin. Here it is with a skin. Same representation, gas, micropores, plasma. And here you have, and here you have plasma infiltration actually being demonstrated. And you have gas, you have plasma, you have your pores, but you have this submicroporous polymer layer or skin, if you will. And that's how, that's the difference between polypropylene oxygenators and polymethylpentene oxygenators, summed up in that one slide. What we have to take seriously into consideration is availability, there was a shortage, longevity, cost, infection risk, embolic events, and inflammatory mediator production. So as I said, there's a single source for PMP. And there recently were back orders, production issues. We had COVID, middle of a pandemic. People were scrambling to get the Quadrox oxygenator. And in fact, Levanova was having real problems filling all of their orders for their version of uh, the PMP, the EOS oxygenator. And it's an excellent oxygenator, by the way. I really, do, I really do like it. And I like it for a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons is we have been uh, really working aggressively towards non-anticoagulant uh, zero anticoagulation protocol for our venous ECMOs significantly has reduced our bleeding complications. I've been very impressed with it. Uh, but we have not had any thrombus problems with the oxygenator as long as we have good flow. We haven't had any thrombus problems at all because we haven't had that circumstance. I've had thrombus occur somewhere else, uh, but it came, I, I, I think it came from the patient, but we're not 100% sure. But it didn't, it was not the oxygenator. Um, there are other oxygenator designs that are more prone to uh, clot generation. Um, but of course, if you run out of them, you have to do something. So I think that's the, that's part of the controversy of all of this is if you run out of, uh, of, of PMP fiber and they can't make the oxygenators and they can't get them to you, but you have patients that really need to be taken care of, we have to be able to do that with what is our traditional, uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, elective coronary surgery, valve surgery, heart surgery patients. Um, longevity, uh, uh, longevity favors PMP. So notwithstanding there are failures, they on average will last much, much longer. Um, if you use polypropylene, you have to be very, very sensitive to the use of, uh, propofol because it's a lipid and also patients that are hyperlipidemic. I told you I was going to teach you what to do. 
and I think I got ahead of myself here. I'm not 100% sure, but I'll just repeat it if I have to. If the patient is grossly hyperlipidemic, you can almost anticipate you're gonna have early oxygenator failure. When I say early, couple of days, four days in that range, if you're using polypropylene. If you're using propofol, the same exact phenomenon would occur, will occur. So you need to use Versed and fentanyl, or you need to use Presidex or whatever your flavor may be, but avoid propofol at all costs if you have a patient that you're having to do ECMO on with a polypropylene hollow fiber oxygenator. If they're grossly hyperlipidemic, then it's really a smart idea to do therapeutic plasma exchange, and you can do it directly through your ECMO circuit. You can use a filter-based system. It does not have to be centrifugal. Uh, the filter-based systems for doing therapeutic plasma exchange, like the Baxter-Gambro uh, Prisma, Prismax machine, has a TPE capability um, that's filter-based, and you can really accomplish a lot by getting the uh, lipid profile of the patient down uh, and extend the life of your oxygenator significantly by doing that if you need to. Cost, however, favors polypropylene, no doubt about that. It's at least double, uh, if not triple, the cost for the oxygenator. Uh, PMP versus uh, polypropylene. And then you have infection and inflammatory mediator uh, mitigation. And it's a somewhat controversial topic, but I'll have the discussion because I think it's worth having. And that is that I feel like, and you know, I'm going to show you this, these, these images first because I think these images bring my point home. This is a Quadrox oxygenator, and this is the return side or the patient side, and you can see it full of clot. It's a CT, post-exchange. Post Here you see a tremendous clot burden. And here you see on the outlet, this is the arterial side, you see tremendous clot burden, burden in this oxygenator. And I'm gonna tell you, you wouldn't, even see the, you wouldn't even see this in your pressure drop. This wouldn't even be detected in your pressure drop, unless you measured oxygenator blood volume using the transonic ELSA meter or something like that, um, you would never know that that clot was there, but that clot's going to break off and go downstream. So it's something that really bothers me, but not only is it going to clot, uh, break off and go downstream, that's only one aspect of this. That clot, if you have a patient who's septic, becomes a nidus for continued infection because antibiotics aren't going to treat the oxygenator or the clot. And so that is a huge problem. And so I've got difficulty, and especially with the corners, because you're going to have areas of stasis there, which again are a problem if you have an infection. Um, you can clear the infection from the patient, but you're going to reinfect them because the it's never really going to clear because the until you change the oxygenator, but you may not think you need to because it's running just fine. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that I have with these devices. So my philosophy is that do I really want an oxygenator that will last 20 days, 25 days, 30 days, 35 days, and leave the patient on one system for that length of time without changing it from an infection 
mitigation van viewpoint, that's a really bad idea. So let's see how long polypropylene hollow fiber oxygenators actually last um, on patients, you know, in a non-controlled setting. In other words, we're just going to use it and count the days and see what happens. We're not selecting patients based on lipid profile. Now, the only thing we are doing is not using propofol. And if we did use propofol, it became apparent very early, and I can show you that as well. So I think that changing the system helps to reduce infection, even though you are taking a risk by cutting into the system, adding connectors and reconnecting it and doing a new system. Um, I think that the risk of that potential contamination is far less than the risk of the ongoing uh, contamination and, and, and uh, infection source that you find by leaving the system there full of blood and clot burden and everything else for, uh, for that many days. I, I think it's really, for me, I just, it's controversial, but I, it really bothers me and I don't like it. Uh, inflammatory mediator mitigation as well, that's also controversial. I, you know, have always seemed to see, and this is something that's anecdotal, but it's my two eyes looking at a whole lot of patients that I've done this on, that when I change the oxygenator, they pink up. They look really good. Now, they'll eventually go back down to where their baseline was, but that's happening for a reason. And we know that polypropylene, and I'm assuming polymethylpentene as well, but I'm not positive, but I know polypropylene, uh, is a very good adsorber of inflammatory mediators. So you can really remove a lot of bad juju by doing that, by changing it all out and clearing some of those things, getting absorbed. And maybe that's the reason I see them kind of perk up and look better for a period of time. And then they, again, go back to their baseline. We looked at that. Uh, flow and clot detection in the ECMO system. Um, this was uh, done from Stockholm, Sweden. And this is just a, a, a rep the pump that they used. Here you see clot inside the actual centripetal pump. And here, if you look very carefully, you can see clot in a connector. So clot can develop and hang around and be there in a lot of different places in the ECMO system, not just the oxygenator. And again, that's why when I change the ECMO system, I change the entire ECMO system uh, the oxygenator, the pump, because we don't use the, uh, the cardio help, which is integrated. We have two separate components, the pump and the oxygenator part. Uh, but I change it all. I think if you're going to change one, change. If you can change it at the cannulation site, the cannula itself, I think that's ideal. Sometimes that's hard to do. I'm kind of getting away from it. I did it for the longest time. Uh, but now I just go ahead and, 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 prepare my lines on a sterile field, prep everything up, do that stuff. And then uh, I try to keep my line length long enough if I think we're going to ambulate the patient, but uh, short enough to reduce my hemodilution effect and to not have a bunch of redundant tubing, which could then have its own problems getting kinked and getting pulled and other things that can happen, which, you know, is it's a treacherous environment 
uh, yet such important, sensitive stuff. It's very interesting, the dichotomy that exists there. This is one of my cases, and if you look right here, you see a big clot right there at the inlet of the pump. This is the inlet of the pump or the negative side. This is the positive side of the pump or the outlet. And if you look, you see this ring of white right here. And this is actually cavitation. That's air. But that air didn't come from the patient, didn't come from a source outside. It came from the negative pressure and basically drawing gas out of solution. This is cavitation. And so this had to be changed, obviously, emergently. Um, uh, but the patient was doing pretty well, thankfully, and uh, tolerated the change uh, 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 pretty well. Now, he didn't like it, but the patient was, uh, was, was, had enough reserve to tolerate all of what happened. But it happened very acutely. And actually, the first indication was a very loud noise of this pump head, Let's see if I can make that work. Yeah, this whole pump head decoupling from the base, which you see in the back here. So the magnet decoupled. We heard the really loud noise. Flow, of course, went to zero. Um, we got it started again, and after getting it going again, we didn't know why it decoupled. Um, then this happened. We snapped a quick picture as the other system, they had gone to get it, and uh, we found that right there. So I was able to get a good picture of that. Um, I, yeah, I got ahead of myself. This is my opinion based on my observations. Patients that have a high inflammatory process going on, uh, they really seem to improve hemodynamically, perk up, if you will, after I change the oxygenator. And I believe that's because of clearing by adsorption inflammatory mediators that may be in the patient. Um, it may just be that 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 system has some something else in it. It may be uh, uh, generating. I don't know, but I do notice it. It's what I see. Um, this must be weighed against the risk of the change out. Obviously, you can't just you know willy nilly be changing these things. You have to be ready to do it. Plan it. Uh, don't do it when it's a crisis uh, because if the patient is really unstable, um, it's very hard to get it done in that uh, fast a period of time. But it can be done safely and in a sterile fashion. So can you use polypropylene hollow fibers for ECMO? Well, you can decide. Is it don't push, pull only, or don't pull, push only? It can be a somewhat confusing uh, thing. So let's look at our 2020 initial oxygenator type selection. If it was VA ECMO, 100% of VA ECMOs were put on VA ECMO with a polypropylene uh, microporous hollow fiber oxygenator. If it was VA, the VA ECMO was zero, okay? For VV, 59% were put on with polypropylene, and if it was, uh, and 41% were put on with uh, the PMP. So that's our percentages. For VA, and this is VA, with initial polypropylene lungs, 
we had uh, nine patients. Only one of those patients required an oxygenator change out at day one. And remember what I told you about propofol. Use propofol, it can create a real problem. However, that patient was on ECMO for four days. In fact, the highest was four days. The last four patients were on for four days. And that's typically what we see for our VA ECMO run. So in this case, it was one out of four, 25% that had to be changed. And I don't believe we would have had to change it had we not been giving the patient uh, propofol. Nevertheless, three days, three days, two days, three days, three days, and uh, all the rest of them did not need to be changed for any reason. So, you know, if you're having a shortage of, 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 of PMP fiber oxygenators and you're looking at VA ECMO, which may be a short run, um, even VV ECMO, should I do our, my first one with polypropylene to try and preserve my PMP so that I don't run out of those for patients that I think are going to be on much longer term. I think these are questions that have to be asked, uh, especially when you're dealing with high resource utilization and low resource availability paradigms as one finds in a respiratory virus pandemic when it is related to microporous hollow fiber oxygenator technology. I'm sure that makes sense to a lot of people. So this is another uh, 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 representation. This is 37 patients total. The, uh, it's divided up in these various bars. Initial oxygen, this is VV ECMO. If the initial oxygenator was polypropylene, it's a blue bar. If it was initially PMP, it's an orange bar. The green bar represents the total days before the oxygenator needed to be changed. And the yellow bar represents the total number of days any one patient was on ECMO. And just to make it a little easy, if you look down here at the little red um, things here, these every single one of these is polypropylene as the initial uh, choice for oxygenator. And there are 22 of those out of the 37. And what you notice is, in this case, this patient was only on for two days. Okay? This patient was on for nine days. This patient, 11 days. And if you look here, days to change, this was five days, this was four days, this was three days, but only one change. This was four days, patient was on for a total of 15 days. This was 13 days. That was the, then that actually had to be changed. Um, no, it didn't have to be changed. Initial PMP, that one didn't have to be changed. I'm so sorry. Um, over here, one day. Over here, uh, this patient was on for a total of nine days with uh, no need for change. Eight days, no need for change. Six with the change at four three with a change of uh, at five days. And that should be obviously more than that. That doesn't make sense. 13 with a change at seven days. So you see a theme here. They last somewhere between seven to 10 days. Is not uncommon. Four to 10 days. 
you can do things to stretch it out to about 10 days. But if you look at the days on ECMO, we have a 26 and a 25, and we predicted that actually, because if you see, we started right off with the PMP. We have a 20 and a 36, we have a 27, we have a 39. So, you know, we had some longer runs, but most of these, if you look at 27, it might have had been changed once or twice, maybe. Um, and if the patient was stable, why not? Um, but, you know, nevertheless, we did use PMP as an initial and didn't have to, uh, and it was actually changed on day one, but I don't think that was related to the oxygenator failure. I remember that patient, and it was for a different reason. Um, this was changed at 13 days, so it didn't last the full 20 days. This one was changed at four days. This is a PMP. This one was changed at 20 days, and we didn't change it just because we wanted to change it. We changed it because there was clinical indication to change it. So this slide, I believe, is validation for me that I can use polypropylene oxygenators for either VA ECMO or VV ECMO in the event I do not have PMP or I am needing to conserve my PMP systems for patients that I know are going to be longer runs, possible with ambulation, that the goal is to keep them on ECMO, maybe get them extubated, put them on, putting them on ECMO awake because I'm gonna be taking them downtown for a, a lung transplant. Those are the patients that I'm gonna selectively choose PMP on uh, versus the patient who I think is just going through an insult that is going to hopefully, there's the plan, that's sort of the way we view it, that they're going to recover in a week, two weeks, 14 days, 21 days, right in that range and be coming off ECMO. So that is my preference. And I wanna point something else out to you. And this is very important, actually. I'm gonna go way back. Going way back to the way back machine. Actually, they're right here. What I want you to look at here is just because this happened, this is not an emergency. If you look right here, this is the arterialized blood. This is arterial blood. It has great transfer. This is happening, and you can't leave it. it you just can't. It looks bad for number one, and, uh, and, and you just can't leave that. So you do have to change this system. But it's not an emergency, and it doesn't just stop working. So you have plenty of time. You see this starting even before it looks like this. So you know it's coming and you can be very well prepared for it. It's not acute and it's not catastrophic by any stretch of the imagination. So I think that was an important concept I needed to add to this. And then if I may uh, summarize, microporous hollow fiber oxygenators are the standard of oxygenators uh, today. PMP fiber is a coated or sheathed fiber that is submicroporous. PMP fibers have less reactivity to lipids contributing to longevity, but can still plasma leak. 
polypropylene fibers have lipid reactivity uh, causing plasma leakage. However, um, they are far more readily available because there is more than one manufacturer, because there's only one current manufacturer or source of PMP. All oxygenators and ECMO circuits have areas of stasis, even round ones, but it's certainly worse in systems with corners, and I think that is common sense. Polypropylene may adsorb inflammatory mediators. Uh, and again, that's controversial, my opinion. Uh, when you look at using CRRT, there's many times you use an AN69 filter for that very reason because of the charge on it. And it's very good for adsorbing inflammatory mediators. And sometimes you'll go through a filter a day trying to accomplish that even over several hours until you get enough inflammatory mediators cleared that the filter doesn't, that the, uh, that the uh, 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 filter doesn't, clog, not clot. Polypropylene oxygenators are used for standard CPB hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day, probably thousands of times a day. Uh, worldwide, probably even more than that. Polypropylene oxygenators, are, uh, polypropylene oxygenators can be used safely for long-term ECMO. And by long-term, I mean a week, two weeks, three weeks, even 30 days. Um, but you must manage the lipids and do not use propofol. Very important. Okay, so I think it is time, if you uh, don't mind, for a short break. And I'd like to come back and do part two of this program, which is going to be talking about where we are here in Houston uh, with the pandemic, which may be reflective of where you are, wherever you're watching from, uh, through this pandemic. So this slide, <coughs> all of these slides are coming from the um, Texas Medical Center uh, resource for the uh, uh, trends going on right now with COVID. And this is the effective reproduction rate for the greater Houston uh, area. And uh, so if you look at it, basically what it says is if it's uh, down here at zero, of course, that would be, oh, come on. Um, that would be zero reproduction. In other words, how many people is one person giving this to? So a half a person all the way up to about 0.8 is considered anything less than one for 15 days is considered community control. If one person is giving it to one person and more, so uh, all the way up to one and a half, two people could go higher from there, one person transmitting it to multiple people, then that is considered community spread. So that's what the effective reproduction rate uh, means. So you can see that last week we're, we were at 1.33 and uh, the previous week we were at 1.58. So it's a little bit better, but it's still in the community spread. So each one person last week that had it gave it to 
three, three people. So you can see that that would grow over the course of a lot of, a lot of different people. Here you have the daily new COVID-19 positive cases for the greater uh, Houston area. And what you're looking at here again is community control is less than 200 cases for 14 days. Well, uh, new cases last week were at 507 and the week previous to that was 398 per day. So you could see that things are getting a little worse in this regards. And uh, we have uh, well beyond, I think at this point, we're definitely in community spread by a uh, more than double. So two and a half times in that particular case. So, and what's the point of this? Well, the point of this is, is that if we have another surge and more ECMO patients, it is very possible, and this could happen to you too, um, that you will again have a shortage of whatever flavor oxygenator you want that's made of PMP, Every, every manufacturer will suffer the same shortage because there's only one source for it. And if they have a shortage, everyone has a shortage. Um, you may need to have an alternative. And I don't want people afraid to use a polypropylene oxygenator uh, for, uh, for ECMO in the ICU. There's a reason to be. I've done it for years and it, it's, it's, you know, yeah, it doesn't last as long. Some do. Some last as long mostly don't, uh, but you have an easy system to change and a plan in place. Avoid the lipids, like I said. Uh, no propofol, control anybody that is hyperlipidemic. Do therapeutic plasma exchange on them. You uh, can actually run these things a lot longer than uh, one would suspect. Um, this is daily new cases. Uh, we uh, just die, you know, just as a, a, a I'm sorry. Uh, what I do as a graph and you can see the trend going from 619 to 718 so over the course of a month and you can see the red line starting to climb here and you see this this area is represented in this and you can see here that the numbers are starting to trend up now nowhere near where they were back in December and January when we were just absolutely overwhelmed. But I get very concerned when I'm starting to see a blip coming back up again and I'm looking at these trends as well. And I don't want to get, I'm not going to get into the politics of all of this nonsense about vaccines, no vaccines, who's getting vaccinated, who's not getting vaccinated. You know, I, that isn't my intent here. My intent here is only for one thing, and that is to discuss how do we manage the resources we have to take care of patients who may get sick from COVID-19 or something else for whatever the reason is, and we have an issue uh, with uh, getting uh, hollow fibers. And I think my intent going over all of this data is to show that there, you know, I, I know there's a lot of noise out there, but we are seeing more cases. That's just a fact. That's what I'm seeing. Maybe somebody else somewhere else is seeing something 
something else, something different. We're seeing another bump. How far it's going to go, I don't know. It just might be a little, a little blip, but it could just skyrocket, and we don't know at this point in time. Here is the weekly average of TMC daily COVID-19 hospitalizations. And again, you see the first surge, you see the second surge, and you definitely see now an, another increase, which is almost double from the week before. So again, something to be concerned about. And you can find this, by the way, online. If you go to, what is it, tmc.org? Org. I can't remember. This is really a good site to go to. Let me uh, let me see what the website is because uh, I don't want to tell you something. No, it's tmc.edu. So uh, really good website to see what's going on in the Houston Metropolitan Service Area, statistical area um, for uh, for uh, COVID and uh, gives you a lot of good information that I think is useful for us as uh, medical practitioners, whether you're in Houston or somewhere else, uh, because these things, I think, this just moves around, and you, what we see here, what we see someone else going through, we eventually seem to go through it, and what we go through, we get kind of towards the end of it and starts looking better, and then we see it happening over there at someplace else. So there does seem to be this geographical um timing of all of this stuff um this is the tmc covid19 positive patients that are in the hospital at this time and uh basically the light blue which is on the top is in here and then here this sort of uh funny bluer color almost tealish color this is med surge if they're in the icu they're down here with this blue or, uh, no, I'm sorry, backwards. This is med surge, this is med surge. The top is ICU, but you see the total number of patients, whether it be the medical surgical or it be the ICU, is getting more, getting higher. And again, here you see this drawn out in a graph with trend line, and you see this right here starting to come up. Very important, again, to be concerned about this. This is a totally different hospital. It is within the Houston area, but it is not a TMC facility. Um, I went ahead and redacted the names uh, and, and the place because I think it's, I just don't, didn't want to reveal that. But this is written by the CMO, and I woke up this morning and thought of the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray's character gets trapped in a time loop, forcing him to relive February 2nd repeatedly as he now face, as we now face our fourth surge of COVID-19 patients, I'm beginning to know how he feels. I knew the chances were good that we'd see another surge from COVID-19 because of the spread of variants. But now that it has happened, I've decided to do what Murray's character eventually does in the movie, reframe the situation to focus on the positive. We know what to do, and we know how to do it well. For some context, today we have 203 COVID-19 patients in our hospital. 
almost double the number we had one week ago. This should be no surprise, but the vast majority of our COVID-19 patients are not vaccinated. And the ones who are vaccinated have serious underlying conditions. Now look, I'm just going to tell you, this isn't politics. This is just real, okay? This isn't an agenda. These are just facts. You know, we talk about that all the time. You know, you can, people say it all the time. You can, you can, you can, you can have your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Facts are facts, and these are facts. Um, also of interest during this surge, the average age of patients in our ICUs is 55 compared to an average age of 65 in January. And for patients not in the ICU, the average age as of today is 55 compared to 62 in January. So you see a little bit younger patient. To see how the rest of the TMC is doing, please visit the site. Now, this isn't a TMC hospital, but they are affiliated with TMC. Um, the person wrote this, said that they will echo with uh, Dr. Uh, so-and-so saying that saying what is the same in this surge is our incredible team of nurses, physicians, and all employees who are being called upon to provide unparalleled care yet again. I am deeply grateful and deeply confident that we can do this again. To me, I, I could have done without the last part. I don't think I can do this again. And I'm really, really hopeful that we don't have to do this again. I think we're just going to see more cases, but I am hoping not at the level and with the um, just the veracity of the, uh, the 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 last surge that we went through. That was really horrific, and I don't want to go through that again. This uh, is a chart that comes uh, out of I think it's out of the WHO, if I remember right, and you see. The um, red is patients who have a, uh, a real high community spread. Orange is community spread escalating. Yellow is potential for community spread, which is everywhere. And green seems to be doing great. So America, Samoa, and uh, the, uh, I think it's the, uh, is it the Northern Marianas Islands? I think that's what it is. Um, they're doing fantastic, so we need to go there. But even Guam and, and Hawaii have, uh, have uh, are yellow, which uh, potential community spread. But look at Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, and Florida. I mean, they're really blowing up with cases right now. And um, they're, you know, close to Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Texas, where I am, and Oklahoma and Arizona and Kansas. Um, so, you know, we're a very mobile society. Those people aren't going to just stay right there. And hopefully we can get this figured out and get this under control. Um, I wanted to go over the, um, the latest updates on guidelines from ELSO, because I think this is critically important for all of us to be aware of. And this is published, of course, in ASIO, and it was May of 2021. A multi-center French study of 83 patients with COVID-19-related ARDS managed with ECMO revealed an estimated 60-day mortality of 31%. Now, 
I, I can I can tell you as a French study, I can tell you we aren't having outcomes like that. Uh, ours isn't a 60-day mortality of 31%. Ours is a 60-day survival of 31% and possibly even lower than that. Um, though I have some, some, some hope uh, with a, a recent uh, patient that we've done. I got to tell you about her. Subsequently, data from ELSO, uh, the ELSO registry reported an estimated cumulative incidence of in-hospital mortality 90 days after ECMO initiation of 37%. Again, that is very exceptional. I, we are not seeing that. And my friends around the country that I know aren't seeing that. So with that said, please take these numbers. I am uh, with a little bit of uh, skepticism. This report included 1,000 patients with COVID-19 who received ECMO in 36 different countries. An additional observational study reported 45% mortality for 1,500 patients from 170 centers, uh, 77 centers in Europe and Israel. Important point. According to pandemic historical data from the ELSO registry, VV ECMO or venovenous ECMO results in an approximate mortality of 40%. That's agreed upon. Veno arterial, VA ECMO, 55%. And uh, ECPR uh, has a mortality of 71%, so about a 29% survival. Mean VV run duration is generally longer, 12 days, than VA, seven days. Remember what I talked about? You can go back and v, whether you're using polypropylene or you're using, so VA ECMO, I'm never going to choose to put a, a, a PMP fiber on that patient because VA is usually, only, for us, is only going to be, you know, two to five days uh, in that range. If it goes longer, then we'll switch them out to a, uh, I think it's going to be a long term. I'll switch them to a, uh, a PMP when it becomes appropriate, when it becomes appropriate. For patients with COVID-19, mortality is similar to historical VA ECMO mortality. Um, I can't say I completely agree with that. That's not what I've seen. However, mortality is still being determined with ongoing data collection and may be increasing. And so I think that may be the issue as other people are seeing it as well, but it may not be getting into the data banks. Median 14 and 20 days and mean of 18 days run duration appears to be longer with patients uh, on COVID, well, that have COVID or are, are, are on ECMO due to ECMO-associated lung failure. In the great majority, greater than 90% of reported cases, VV ECMO was utilized for COVID-19. Some patients with COVID-19 developed myocarditis, massive PE, stress cardiomyopathies, arrhythmias, and acute coronary syndrome. And I don't know if, uh, I know there's a lot of controversy about whether the vaccine can cause myocarditis or has caused it or not, or, uh, or uh, uh, DVTs, not exactly sure, but we know COVID-19 does, uh, which may require mechanical circulatory support like VA ECMO. Data on VA ECMO for COVID-19 are limited in the ELSO registry study and may be found in small case series, making the utility of VA ECMO for COVID-19 
related cardiogenic shock less clear. As a general guide to practice, we recommend the use of ECMO for patients with COVID-19 and severe cardiopulmonary failure who meet traditional criteria and when appropriate resources are available. Very important point there. Given the paucity of, or the small amount of available data when prior ECMO guidelines were published, this guidance has been created to summarize currently available literature and offer recommendations to update select areas within the previous guidelines. This document will focus on care specific to COVID-19 patients receiving ECMO and recommended alterations in the utilization of ECMO during a pandemic. We recommend referral to existing guidelines for general ECMO practices. Survival with VV ECMO for COVID-19 related pneumonia and ARDS is similar to historical data for other causes of acute severe or ARDS meeting VV indications in the ELSA registry. This suggests that COVID-19 could be considered similarly to other causes of reversible infectious pulmonary disease with awareness that COVID-19 patients may require longer runs. However, mortality in this population may be increasing over time and updated data should be considered in decision making. Very important, I highlighted it for that reason. It is currently unknown if COVID-19 patients requiring VA ECMO have similar survival compared with historical data. So again, take that as it be that as it may, you have a patient who has cardiopulmonary failure because of COVID, I think we just need to use our traditional algorithms and uh, hope that that patient's disease is reversible. But I think that as if we have, if we have another surge and resources are grossly limited, understanding and uh, having to make the unfortunate decision about futility of care may have to be something that's done earlier on in the process based on all available data and experience on any one particular patient. Some key recommendations from ELSO, VV ECMO may be utilized for patients with COVID-19 and severe uh, respiratory failure, ARDS, with expected outcomes if they are comparable to patients supported with VV ECMO uh, during this pandemic. VA ECMO may be utilized for patients with COVID-19 and severe cardiac failure. However, this experience is more limited on a global scale. Mobile ECMO is feasible and may be conducted safely for patients with COVID-19, and mobile ECMO means we go out to some community hospital, put the patient on ECMO, transport the patient back to our hospital. That's what that is describing. Organized ECMO centers within geographic regions to coordinate patient referrals where feasible. Unify patient selection criteria across a geographic region where feasible. Contraindications for ECMO use should become more stringent as ECMO capacity diminishes. That's a tough one. Data submission to facilitate research is essential for our evolving understanding of optimal ECMO care for patients with COVID-19. 
and this is an important point highlighted, while some centers have increased their anticoagulation targets, bleeding remains a concern and there is no data to recommend deviation from conventional anticoagulation goals. There is no data to recommend deviation from conventional ECMO practices, blood product transfusion thresholds, tracheostomy, endotracheal extubation, rehabilitation, cannulation configurations, or ventilatory management. Another key important point, potential discontinuation of ECMO in the setting of perceived utility should be clearly discussed with patients and their surrogate decision makers. And then rarely, children can require ECMO support for severe ARDS, myocarditis, multi-system inflammatory disease. In children, ECMO patient selection and management should follow conventional guidelines. You know, that's one of the things that I had a real problem with uh, early on was we were, we were not taking care of these patients that were there before because we're taking care of these patients here and these patients were taking priority over those patients and I was finding a lot of these patients were really sick and, and, and not all, some of them per, were perceived as futile, not all of them were, but uh, they were really sick. And we had a lot of patients sitting over here that were, you know, we could help very easily and predictably would do really well. And they were having to wait and getting worse and having their own problems. There was a lot of collateral damage associated with this pandemic. What is the definition of utility for termination? This is the most important thing that I will say to all of you today. And of course, I'm not the one saying it. I'm reading it. It's from Elso. What is the definition of futility for termination? Not all patients will improve with ECMO support. As is standard with usual ECMO care, clinicians should be continuously evaluating when ECMO no longer provides a positive benefit-risk ratio and should at that point return to conventional management regardless of how long the patient has been on ECMO. Very key, during times of limited resources, this becomes especially important. And while the definition will be hospital or region specific, observing no longer cardiac recovery after approximately 21 days on ECMO can be considered futile and the patient can be returned to conventional management. For situations where withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies is not an option, this change of management does not constitute withdrawal. So what they are saying here is if you have a patient that is not improving and you are, have, are, are beginning to exhaust your resources and you have other patients that are better candidates, you know, objectively, clearly, then weaning the patient from ECMO and transitioning them back to ventilatory support or, or usual management 
is not considered withdrawal of care. It's transitioning to conventional management and totally different way of looking at what is an ethical dilemma for all of us at best more often than I wish it was. But it's a very, very important statement. And I applaud Elso for publishing this. This is very meaningful and very important. Um, here they have an algorithm. It, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through the entire algorithm. You can go through it and you can find it very easily on uh, in a SIO and it's uh, you can probably find it from Elso, but it's the uh, a new ECMO indications and contraindications and a nice flow chart about how to um, manage uh, ECMO indications in the pandemic environment. And uh, so I think it's a really good thing to understand and to have. It's helpful in our decision-making um, algorithms. This was a great article by uh, Dr. Barbaro, Ryan Barbaro, out of uh, Michigan. Did I say it wrong? Hello? No. Magic? Did I say it wrong? The name? Barbaro? No. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought I said it wrong. I want to make sure I didn't make a mistake. Um, but this is out of uh, uh, Michigan State. And these results support recommendations to consider ECMO in COVID-19 if the ventilator is failing. Uh, we hope these findings help hospitals make decisions about this resource-intensive option. The title is ECMO, Last Resort Life Support Option Helped Majority of Critical Ill COVID-19 Patients Survive. Global study shows. ECMO outcome study at Experience Center suggests key role for treating worst hit patients as pandemic continues. There was a new study, the article goes on to say, Dr. Barbaro points out, in The Lancet and provides strong support for the use of ECMO. Short for, you know, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in appropriate patients as the pandemic rages on worldwide. It may help more hospitals that have ECMO capability understand which of their COVID-19 patients might benefit from this technique, which of course we know how it works. Um, small studies published early in the pandemic had cast doubt on whether ECMO really was useful. Still, the international team of authors uh, uh, cautions that patients who show signs of needing advanced life support should receive it at hospitals with experienced ECMO teams. This is another tremendously prophetic, highly prophetic uh, comment. And that hospitals shouldn't, should not try to add ECMO capability mid-pandemic. Now, the manufacturers, they want you to do that. And I, I am so appalled at some of them 
for trying to sell this to every hospital in the in the in the country that you have to have an ECMO capability. Machines are great. You got to have the experienced people that know how to run them. And there's a lot. It is a resource intensive procedure. If you are not an ECMO center, please don't try to become an ECMO center overnight. It is the wrong thing to do. Get your patient transported out. Have someone come with an ECMO circuit and get the patient on ECMO. Do something besides trying to put the patient on ECMO unless you have the experience and the resources and the multidisciplinary approach towards being able to manage this patient, these patients, because they are very challenging at best and can be even more so uh, at times. This is a slide, a graph that I got from the paper that I found to be, I really had to look at this for a long time. And if you look at it from this number here, which is the color represents patients that died. And it was over 90 days. And if you look at it, it's real interesting that it's right about 40%. Okay, there's 1,000 patients, maybe a little over 1,000, and it's about 400, maybe 410 in that range. So 40% mortality, 60% survival. But this is what I noticed about it. Discharge to home or rehab. In my view, if you're not discharged to home and go on to have a relatively reasonable quality of life, you may be alive, but is that really alive? I understand that's subjective, but I think it's a fair question. But let's just consider home or rehab is really alive. If you look at that, that goes down somewhere about 750, closer to 800. That was pretty bad use of my little uh, light there. Let's try that again. Oh, man. There it goes. I'm going to try to go across. Right about there, 72, 74 in that range. That is a survival I'm going to call it 25%. That's a survival of 25%. But you look at this, seems like the survival is a lot more. If you got discharged to an LTAC or other unspecified, there's a big chunk that isn't considered died. But I think we all know what that means. Yellow, discharged to another hospital. Again, how many of them are actually alive? They got discharged to another hospital and did what? I've discharged patients to other hospitals before that were on ECMO and they didn't survive. So I know that they all don't. How many? Half, let's say. So let's add a little more. From 25%, we'll go to 30%. Maybe go to 35%. 35%. That's probably a lot closer to reality versus only a 35 to 40% mortality, which represents a 60 or 65% survival. When you look at it the way I just looked at it, 
this number is um, not representative of what really is going on. Now, it's great we've got these, you know, 25% discharge to home or rehab alive. That's great. I mean, certainly. I mean, I do not, I'm not saying ECMO is a bad idea by any stretch. But I think that it's very important that we not represent that you have a 60, 65% survival with COVID ARDS because you don't and we haven't seen it, notwithstanding there are some people reporting it. And I think, uh, again, discharge to LTAC is still considered alive. But, and it's true, they are alive when they get there. And 90 days is 90 days. Got to look at 91 days, you got to look at 180 days. What's the reality of all of this? And I don't think we have an answer to that at this point. But we've had some saves. We have a 40-year-old uh, woman who was, has a 7-year-old daughter. She had the worst course for the first month. I thought I, there was no way this lady was going to make it. And I have to give a shout-out shout out to a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Dr. Keeblin and Dr. Kali and Dr. Kumar, um, who worked, especially Dr. Keeblin. He was the main advocate. He took the patient down to CT, uh, and uh, we, uh, we looked, and he said there was no fibrotic changes. And this patient was exsanguinating from her oro and nasal pharynx. She was um, third-spaced. She looked absolutely horrible. Um, she was just not getting better. Her sats were just dreadful. But she stayed single organ failure. She ended up with a little bit of, you know, liver dysfunction, which was considered, and Dr. Maniscalco, too. I forgot to mention him. I shouldn't have, but I, I did. My apologies for that. Um, that was uh, believed to be secondary to the pulmonary hypertension from this disease process, a little right heart dysfunction backed up into the liver. But that has improved. That lady has been on ECMO now 90 days, and she walked yesterday 127 feet. It looks like we're going to be able to wean her off of ECMO. She is still trached. Um, we thought she needed a double lung transplant. It actually looks like she's not going to need a double lung transplant. And um, she is going to be a, uh, a survivor. And... What made doing what we have done with so many incredible, horrible failures worth every single one of them for this one opportunity to help that lady? That's a reality, and unfortunately, it's a frightening reality because we only have so many resources. There was a time she was considered futile. And so uh, we, we, this is a, uh, uh, this kind of medicine, whether it's intensive care uh, medicine, cardiac surgery, pulmonology, perfusion, critical care nursing, critical care uh, 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 pharmacology, um, critical care respiratory care, 
Um, the physical therapy people that are helping this lady uh, with that mobility, that getting her to this point of being able to go home alive for her seven-year-old with a reasonable quality of life, um, the uh, uh, sacrifice and the stress and the, 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 the trauma, psychological trauma of all of this has been unbelievable uh, in my view. And all of these people that are doing, taking care of these patients are incredibly gifted and uh, incredibly generous with themselves. So I wanted to pass that along and say that. Thank you for indulging that. In this study, going back to uh, uh, what we were just talking about, we used 90-day in-hospital mortality because this is the highest risk period. And because it allows us to use the information we have to the fullest, even if we don't know the final outcome for every patient. Having data through August when only a small number of the patients in the study remained in the hospital was important. Though data are missing on a small number of patients, we saw that on that graph. And even though patients who were discharged to their homes or a rehab facility will likely have a long recovery ahead after the ICU level of care involved in ECMO, they are likely to survive based on our past data and understanding of things. However, this is so important, the fate of those who went to LTAC facilities which provide long-term care at a near ICU level is less certain. And, um, you know, LTACs are not really known as places that you go after what we're talking about with these patients where they're uh, going to be uh, able to be rehabbed to go home. A large, a disproportionately large number of those patients are not leaving that LTAC and going home. So, with that said, I have questions. If you have questions, no, I don't have any questions. I've answered all of my questions. Have I answered yours? If I have not, send me a text on the FaceTime or Messenger, the Twitter, the YouTube, or call in our phone number if you want to. I'm going to give you about, uh, let's give it two or three minutes to see if anybody has any questions. I hope it was a good program. While we're waiting, I will tell you that we're teed up for, uh, for our uh, PerfWeb 65 Vanderbilt University Medical Center Faculty Forum. Remember, it got delayed or it got uh, canceled last month because uh, Matt, our wonderful host from there, actually got sick. Um, I, and did he have COVID again or he had an aspiration pneumonia? I can't. He had pneumonia. Um, yeah, so hopefully he's doing well. I haven't talked to him since, but they're going to be talking about, I think we're going to do the pH one. The, 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 the schedule is likely to change, but it's going to be great. They do a fantastic job. Um, then we have Tammy Sparacino Journal Club talking about preoperative CRP or C-reactive protein as a predictor of postoperative AKI, acute kidney injury in patients undergoing uh, CAB, or coronary artery bypass grafting, cabbage, we like to call it. And then John Ingram is coming to us with his knowledge nuggets, blood storage effects on the blood components. And, uh, of course, after that, or after Tammy's, we'll be doing the Tammy Sparacino 
uh, Journal Club Casino wheel spin. So you could win some something cool, um, a hat, T-shirt, cool phrases, surgical cap, um, and uh, some other assorted items that we have. And uh, you can check the uh, that stuff out um, at John's friend. I can't, re I never can remember the poor guy's name, but he donated all of this stuff to us. So we need to give it away. So please call, ask a question, do whatever you want to do, and we'll uh, we'll go from there. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I hope y'all stay safe. I'm trying. Um, I hope there's a break in all of this and we can all get back to our normal craziness of cardiac surgery and our just our normal uh, ECMO runs with great outcomes. Uh, and uh, we can put this COVID disaster behind us because I'm certainly ready to. And uh, yeah, let me just thank everybody. You know, that's it. You know, I mean, I think we... I think I went a good long time today, didn't I? Yes. Yeah. You know what? You know what I know, David? What do I know? This was oh, best, show best show ever. It was the best show ever. Thank you very much, Magic. It was good seeing you. All of my friends and colleagues out there in web world, we'll talk to you on August the 4th at 0700, same place, same station. See you later.